I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Welcome to the Biz Talks podcast. Today we're talking to Dr. Mark Allen Derry, Medical Director of Infectious Diseases and Chief Innovation Officer of Access Health Louisiana. Dr. Derry has been sharing his medical expertise with local media throughout the pandemic, and we're going to talk today about where we are as a city and state as we ease into phase two of the economic reopening. Uh, Dr. Derry, first off, can you just explain uh, Access Health Louisiana? Sure. So uh, after Medicaid was uh, expanded throughout the state uh, and, and, of course, through the Affordable Care Act, uh, what happened was these, uh, um, these new designations of, uh, that the federal uh, government had uh, created for medical clinics, uh, which are called FQHCs, Federally Qualified Health Clinics, uh, became a thing, uh, and that was just because Medicaid was such a difficult process to navigate, especially if you were a private doctor. So by creating these so-called medical homes, uh, where in one clinic you would have like an internist, you know, you may have a dentist, a psychiatrist, a pediatrician, you know, in one clinic you would have you know multiple specialties. Right. And so Access Health was one of the first FQHCs uh, in the state, and then it's also the largest with thirty nine clinics around the state. So I usually refer to us as we're the largest Medicaid providing clinic system in the state. Gotcha. Um, And how did you end up uh, how did you come to be working there and how long you've been there? Yeah, so that's a good question. I was at Tulane. I was a professor at Tulane for about 15 years. And uh, I um, it just became more uh, my my focus became a little bit more on HIV and hepatitis C and being able to uh, focus a little bit more on some of my grants that I have, I I found a little bit, uh, it was more, it was easier for me to do it within a, um, outside of the academic arena, which can sometimes uh, be um, somewhat difficult. Uh, There's, you know, uh, lots of rules (laughs) and (laughs) lots of of archaic uh, um, and old ways of doing things. And I just needed basically to move fast and break things, if you will. Uh, and when it comes to HIV, uh, especially in the state of Louisiana, I just found that working in the, the FQHC environment with the type of grants that I had made it so that I could be a little bit more innovative uh, and address the uh, HIV problem here in, in Louisiana and in, in New Orleans a little bit more head on. Understand. And can you share a little bit about your background as a medical responder to those various global catastrophes over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we've seen you know quite a bit of these global catastrophes that are happening, and I anticipate we're going to continue to see more. Um, you know, I was in the process of moving to New Orleans during Katrina, uh, and so I was shipped right off uh, and worked at the Astrodome and ran the Astrodome Clinic, uh, you know, basically from Katrina to Rita. Uh, and then uh, soon after, uh, a couple days after the earthquake in Haiti, I was shipped off to Haiti for about three weeks uh, and basically built up and, and managed the uh, First American Hospital uh, as part of that response as well. 
Uh, and then more recently, I was part of the World Health Organization's team on the ground uh, in Sierra Leone uh, to respond to the Ebola epidemic. So I was what, what uh, we refer to uh, my position as a clinical epidemiologist. Uh, today, I think by today's standards, we, we refer to it maybe as something a, akin to a contact tracer, because now people understand what that term would be. Um, uh, so my job was basically working for the World Health Organization, was helping to flatten the curve there. And that was, of course, talking about Ebola. And what I was doing largely uh, was basically hunting down cases of active Ebola, finding clusters of those cases, pockets of the cases in various neighborhoods, and then trying to get everybody into uh, the treatment centers to help break that cycle of ongoing infection. Was that work you were doing as part of Tulane or somebody else? Well, actually, at that point, it was actually kind of funny because we didn't know the university did. We didn't really know what to do with me, and it, it really came down to insurance. It was actually kind of funny, uh, but Tulane actually let me go for those four months uh, because they were like, you know, the WHO is probably going to have better health insurance for you should something happen rather than us. And that was a very good point. I, I could not, I couldn't argue that. And so for those four months, I actually was not part of Tulane, although, uh, you know, I was, you know, I still considered my boss to be my boss, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, I felt like I was still part of Tulane. Uh, but at that point, uh, I was officially a WHO uh, uh, employee during that time. Is it surprising that you're doing that same work now here in, in, here in your hometown? It's shocking, quite frankly, to be honest with you. It is, you know, it is uh, very, uh, uh, it is very surprising, and, and it's funny because you know the 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 first um, you know when the the Fed set up the first testing site here in 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 New Orleans, I was the medical director for uh, that that first weekend that we did the first drive-in testing that we did here. Uh, and uh, there was a picture because it was all brand new. The Times Picayune or the Advocate came out and snapped a picture of me. Um, in PPE and all that stuff, and and it got circulated through you know through social media, and then that got circulated amongst all my colleagues uh, around the world that I worked with with Ebola, and I got a lot of the same uh, messages, which was wow, this you know you are dressed not unlike how we were dressed when we were responding to Ebola, and uh, and it did strike me as being very. Um, uh, surreal that I was literally being able to walk to uh, or drive, you know, in a couple minutes to a testing site, get dressed up and do the same sort of work that I've done around the world that usually takes me 18 hours by plane, you know, five hours by Jeep, you know, another two and a half hours by canoe to get to where, wherever it is that I'm, I am going to work. So yeah, it is surreal that we are experiencing something like that here. But to be honest with you, I'm not surprised. I mean, this is something that that you know, folks like myself who have studied this have been calling for something that w making folks aware that this was something that was going to come down the line at some point. Is this an every hundred year type of thing, and we we've had ours, or is there going to be another one in a year? I anticipate there probably will be another one. To be perfectly honest with you, one is I, I think it's a good question that you're asking. So. 
yeah, I mean, there is some guesstimates that yes, this could be a once every hundred year situation. Of course, the last one that we saw was in 1918, um, and so that that puts us at about a hundred, you know, in two years, of course. Um, but if you think about the things that led to where we are now, those things have not changed, and so that goes back to kind of to a large degree um, uh, that uh, human beings and 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 these fruit bats are having more exposure to one another uh, where that transmission of the coronavirus like starts in a fruit bat that gets into humans. And so why is there more uh, of that? Well, because as we're cutting deeper into you know, the various jungles. We are chasing after resources, you know, digging deeper into jungles um, and, uh, and exposing uh, humans to, uh, to fruit bats. And, and um, as we are, you know, seeing climate changes and we're seeing the degradation of, 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 of various ecological niches, you are seeing a greater exposure of these mammals that carry these, these viruses uh, to, to human beings. And, and uh, so, yeah, so, you know, the, I, you know, I often joke, you know, that one of the things that we're going to see probably again is this is COVID-19, but there's nothing to say that we're not going to see COVID-22. Mm. What is it about the fruit bats in particular? They are a great reservoir of these particular viruses. They, you know, I, 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 I think that the every virus needs to have a host, and this was, and, and the fruit bat was just a great host for the coronavirus to find, and they have just been thriving within the, 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 those fruit bats. That's amazing. So how has Access Health adapted and dealt with the changes brought on by the pandemic? Well, almost overnight, like literally almost overnight, we went to a complete telemedicine model. Uh, and so that was really, uh, uh, that was spectacular, you know, and, and again, our, the leadership at Access was very open to, you know, basically like, listen, we got to go to telemedicine now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, I'm chief innovation officer. So that was, you know, something that they looked to me to help, you know, make happen simultaneously at the same time, we, you know, I was working on a project that was looking to help the state with their hep C, um, elimination project. And we were just, we were just getting ready to submit an application to the NIH National Institutes for Health for hepatitis C elimination using telemedicine. Uh, so we just had everything in place. And so, so literally overnight we flipped to a telehealth uh, a model. So that means that patients um, are being seen through kind of like what we're doing right now through a, through a tele, you know, but doing it through, uh, uh, um, you know, video conferencing. And if they don't have the ability to video conference, we can do it through phone right now. And what that has done is it helped decrease traffic into clinics. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so that's been very successful. Unfortunately, one of the things that one of the, the side effects that has had, if you will, is that we're seeing a significant decline in vaccinations. So we're really now forced to be really creative with being able to make sure that children continue to get their vaccine. So we're doing vaccine drive through clinics uh, and this sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, so that was, you know, the first issue was that the second issue was like everybody else. We were caught without uh, PPE. You know, we had a regular supply that was just working, you know, and then all of a sudden 
everything kind of came to a halt. So finding and protecting our employees was a huge, huge, um, uh, uh, that was, you know, number one priority for us, you know. And so getting our hands on PPE was really important and making sure that employees felt safe to come to work was also uh, exceedingly uh, important. Then we also were very, very early on and again, this is to the credit of the clinic uh, and, uh, and our leadership. I suggested that we needed to start masking as a company immediately, you know, like right from the get go. And our CEO and uh, COO uh, immediately were like, okay, if you think we need to be masking, we'll need to be masking. I'm like, I anticipate at some point we'll hear from the CDC that masking will be necessary. But I think that we really should be masking because when you wear a mask, you're avoiding. That, that virus from being transmitted to other people. And then another way for folks to feel safe when they're coming to work so that they know that the people around them aren't transmitting virus onto them. So right from the get-go, we started this, uh, this uh, we created a culture of universal masking within Access Health. And, uh, and to this day, we're still doing it. And, and, and as a result, I think those were the interventions that we did that really helped keep our staff safe. And we were able to continue working. And we really, you know, we of course had a decrease in our, our um, you know, the patients that were being seen. And of course, a lot of shifts were happening. But for the most part, we were able to kind of continue to move forward uh, with very little, uh, you know, uh, stoppages or very little uh, interruptions along the way. So applying that to the city at large, what, what is your medical advice as we move from phase one to two? Sure. I mean, so so there's a lot of, you know, one is there's we're all new at this, right? So we're all kind of learning as we go. And we know, you know, in June here so much more than we did in April or, or March. And it almost seems like every day we learn something new. But I think that one of the best ways for us to really think about moving forward is that we really do have to kind of see ourselves as working together as a team um, and really kind of not, you know, we have a culture based on this strong sense of individualism. Uh, and, uh, and I think that being able to kind of see ourselves as, as a unified uh, group that are all trying to do the same thing, which is to get out of this conundrum, what I refer to as the COVID conundrum. So one of the things is that masking is so incredibly important, and there's no question about that. First, second, and third uh, interventions need to be masking. So that means, so for myself, for example, I do not go uh, any place where people aren't masked. If there's somebody in a room or a space that's not masked, I ask them to mask. And if they don't, I just leave the space. I mean, so masking is incredibly important. So let's put a pin in that and come back to it because that's very important for bars and restaurants, obviously, okay? So, uh, and we'll get to bars and restaurants in a moment. Um, so, uh, so if you're a business owner, having you know your uh, uh, not only your employees masked because you are going to be that's going to be helping the, your patrons or your customers, but also having your customers mask as well because that's going to be helping your employees. And so I think that that is that's a safe and that's a fair thing to do. Um, contact tracing is so incredibly important. Uh, now I I was supportive of this idea of having a, a list that were being saved 
by businesses uh, to see who came and went as part of the contact tracing. And that did not obviously go over well. And that, that's unfortunate. I, as a public health practitioner, as an epidemiologist, I see that as a critical tool uh, that gets used. Uh, uh, that's moving forward. That's not what we're going to do. But I still think that um, that recognizing the importance of contact tracers. Uh, and so I am often telling people, if you get a phone call from contact tracers, please make sure that uh, you do uh, interact with them, talk with them, or you know, encourage your employees to interact with them uh, as well. I think testing, testing, testing is so incredibly important. Um, and, uh, and so right now our testing is somewhat limited because we are still somewhat limited with testing. Um, the, the, um, the ability to test faster uh, is starting to come down as we're seeing new technologies. So there will be a point where we'll have a point of care test um, and so that, that may be helpful. Um, one of the things that we're thinking about doing at Access Health is maybe testing employees once a week. Just do a, just a whole, just do all 400, everybody gets tested. And if anybody tests positive, then obviously those folks then for two weeks are, are being isolated. So I think those are really good strategies. And again, if anybody tests positive, we connect them with the contact tracer and then we, we isolate them. And I think it's, and I think to a large degree, it's going to be interventions like that. Just today, there was two articles that came out in the very prestigious journal called Nature that showed that in, in Europe, the lockdown policies were responsible for saving millions and millions of lives. So those were referred to as non-pharmacological interventions. And I think what we're going to see is that I don't think that as businesses are opening up, yes, I, we're not going to get to a pre-COVID time anytime soon. So I just think that there needs to be some expectation of understanding that things are going to be different for some time. How long? I, I don't know. But I know that if we all work together, uh, everybody masked, everybody was really good with making sure that, you know, employees were screened regularly, you know, and that's another thing that employees can do is maybe, you know, there are these apps that, that are available or just even pen and paper or just call your manager every morning and they just go over a series of symptoms. And if you answer yes to any of them, that then triggers an automatic referral to your primary care. And then, you know, then you can get tested there. And if you test negative, then you come back to work. But if you test positive and these things have all been shown to work. Um, and that's one of the things that we're trying to do with the city is trying to come up with some common app that maybe can be used or what have you uh, so that folks will be able to kind of jump on, punch in the information. And then if they're and then if they're symptom free or what have you, they've had no exposure at home to somebody with COVID, then they'd be clear to go to work. But the bottom line is that we're not going to be reaching any pre-COVID you know, levels of business, you're still going to have a lot of people that are going to continue to stay at home for the most part. Uh, of course, you're going to get people that are going to come out and this is a tourist city. So you're going to probably still have folks that are going to still come out, but it's not going to be business as usual, probably until we've reached that herd immunity of 60 to 70%, which either comes naturally or that comes through a vaccine. And if it comes naturally, it's going to take years to get there. So hopefully it'll come through a vaccine uh, sooner than later. What percentage of people 
are estimated to have it in some form. So so here in the city, it's hard to say. I know that Oshner did a big serosurveillance study. In other words, they were checking for antibodies. Those results are not public yet. Um, and so I don't know w w here in the city what that may be. Um, I can make some guesses. Um, in Wuhan, there was a study that just came out. So Wuhan, China, where the whole, this the, the epicenter of this global pandemic started in Wuhan, their uh, serosurveillance study was 3.2 to 3.8 percent. Think about that. 3.2 to 3.8 percent. That was in the epicenter of the, uh, and it was that small a number, right? Um, in in the so-called hotspots, you know, you had a couple of studies in California. They were early studies, but they more or less looked at like at five percent. Um, and then you had some studies out of New York. The, those studies, they all had their problems. The one in New York really looked at one group of people that were a little bit higher risk for exposure. So they were there. They had numbers about fifteen percent. But I think in like Chicago and in New Orleans, I would say the numbers, you know, probably close between five to ten percent. Uh, given, uh, you know, but again, I was really shocked by the Wuhan numbers. 3.2 to 3.8% of the population had only been exposed. That's really shocking to me. I would have thought it would have been higher in Wuhan. And is that attributable to the mitigation efforts? No question about it. No question. I mean, they, you know, they went in lockdown literally overnight where they had food delivery. People weren't even allowed to leave the house, you know, for no reason. So, yeah, that, that is clearly uh, as a result of their extraordinary measures that could never be done here. Uh, and maybe it shouldn't be done here. You know, there are ways of us being able to mitigate uh, the, the, the transmission of the disease. But theirs was extreme, of course. Well, it's good to hear that. It's important to hear that because even, you know, someone like me who's been paying attention to this and covering this now for months, I think I even have some fatigue where it's like there's, there's something in the back of your mind. You're thinking, oh, everyone's probably had it by now, that that thing, you know, or uh, and you have to then put it back into perspective that, no, we're still at. 5% or something. <laughs> Everybody wanted antibodies because I'm like, you don't need antibodies. You probably didn't get it. And they're like, well, how do you know for sure? I'm like, well, you can't. I go, but would you play odds of 95%? And people are like, yeah, I'd play odds of 95%. I'm like, okay, well, the odds are 95% that you didn't have it. So <laughs> don't worry, you know, we'll get antibodies. But, you know, but yeah, there's, you know, there's, you know, think about all the death, think about all the issues that have happened uh, just with like, let's say we're working with 5%, just with 5% of the population having had it. Um, and now imagine if we waited until 60 to 70%, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's, you know, to get herd immunity, there'd be a lot of excess mortality, unnecessary mortality, uh, and a lot of, you know, morbidity. Children with this Kawasaki's like uh, uh, disease. And then of course, younger people who are getting strokes from this. And so, you know, it, it's just, there's, there's a level of, uh, uh, it's not as benign as people are making it out to be. It's, it's far less benign than that. Uh, I mean, thankfully it does have a very low mortality rate, but we still need to be very careful and be very thoughtful that there is still a global pandemic, uh, you know, happening around us. Right. I think that what happens is human nature is that, you know, it's, it's been around for a while and, you know, some of the drama and excitement, so to speak, in quotes, happened early. And then you, it, it's, it's human nature to get lax. And, uh, and I was going to ask about that. What's the concern about people, you know, well, of course, obviously there was the protests and everything the past week. But, you know, I'm noticing a lot of young people. I have a lot of teenage children. And, um, you know, we've been trying to do our best. But then there was a party that my daughter made a stop at the other night. 
she had her mask with her, but she said she went in there and no, nobody, nobody was wearing a mask. You know? Yeah, that's, you know, it's, that is, the, that's what we're going to see. And, 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 you know, for the most part, people are going to do well, you know, thankfully, fortunately, uh, but also for the most part, people who are going to get sick and, you know, potentially they may have the virus. We, we recognize now that asymptomatic transmission happens. So these are people who get the virus, but never have any symptoms from the virus. We refer right. to these people as being asymptomatic and people also transmit when they're pre-symptomatic. So let's say you get exposed on day zero. Let's say you don't get sick until day seven. Well, there's seven days where you're transmitting virus without being aware that you're sick. Because most people, when they get sick, will go to bed or they end up, if they have to go to the hospital or, but they end up usually not out transmitting virus. So it's that asymptomatic transmission and the pre-symptomatic transmission is where you're seeing a majority of that transmission happen. And that's very problematic. So you may be fine, but if you live with somebody who may be immunocompromised or you go and give a hug to grandma who's 80 years old and maybe obese and diabetic, and these are the risk factors for, for how people end up dying with COVID-19. And so it, it's not just that the buck stops with you, you know, you're carrying it and potentially could tr transmit it to other people. So hearing a story like that, um, that just, you know, that sends shivers down my spine. I, you know, I haven't, you know, my wife and I are, you know, uh, you know, we pretty much are holed up at, 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 at here or I go to my office to work and my wife works at City Hall and that's pretty much it. And then we come back here and, and, and that's our lives. And, and uh, the idea of going to a restaurant or a bar, you know, that's just it's hard to kind of wrap my head around. It. In fact, let's circle back to that, actually, because I think those are important points. What happens at a restaurant? You know, where you have a situation um, where, you know, as I've since learned, as, as other people have learned what flattening the curve is, I've learned, uh, you know, some things about businesses I did not know. And that is restaurants operate with these so-called very thin margins. Um, and uh, I'm assuming those mean profit margins. And so they don't have a lot of wiggle room. Uh, and so how do you operate a business at 25% or how do you operate a, a business at 50%? I don't, that to me seems very challenging. I don't, I don't know, I'm not a business person, but I could see how that could be potentially challenging. Furthermore, what do you do in a situation where you run a business where people uh, don't wear masks, right? You know, and so I've seen, you know, I live next door to one of the largest and most popular uh, restaurants here in, in town, uh, incredibly successful restaurant, uh, um, you know, and all of the uh, employees, all the folks shucking oysters, all of the folks are literally all of them are wearing masks, bartenders, the maitre d's, everybody's wearing masks, and who's not wearing masks but are, are the customers. And that's fair, you have to eat and you need your mouth to eat, so I understand why you can't wear a mask, but I think implementing rules such as you need to wear a mask while you're sitting at a table before you get your food or after you get your food. You know, things like that. Like if you get up and you're walking around, if you're going to use the restroom, if you're going to the bar to get a drink, that you should be wearing masks. And the masks are only off only at the time of eating. Things like that I think are gonna be particularly helpful moving forward. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, I just, it's, it's just that this is still so new for us and we're still kind of finding our way around. Uh, but what do we do about music? What happens when you do something like singing? Somebody sings, you know, um, you know, uh, I, as, as, as we were having a conversation before we jumped on was uh, I was talking with the singer of, of a band that I'm in and I'm like, can you sing with a mask on? He's like, absolutely not. He's like, I, I won't sing with a mask on. He's like, we could just do instrumentals. 
but you know, singing with a mask on was not something that, that he was comfortable with doing. And I understand why, because he's going to want to hear the best of himself as he's singing, right? Another thing is, what do you do about all the horns that we play, you know? And, and, and you know, you have trumpets and, and trombones and saxophones, and it's, somebody's literally blowing into an instrument and spraying, you know, a potential virus. So these are really difficult conversations and, and things that, that are, are difficult to kind of wrap your head around, especially in this city, which is really, you know, has top world-class food establishments, world-class entertainment establishments, world-class musicians. And without there being a, uh, a body of people uh, to see these, you know, to go to these restaurants or go to these bars to see the, these bands, it's difficult for me to kind of wrap my head around how things are going to be moving forward. And it really is going to require some very innovative thinking on, on behalf of the, uh, of the business leaders in, in our community. I think you forever changed the impression I have of a brass band concert now. <laughs> I just picture it like a giant virus spreading event. It is a super spreading event if there ever was one. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's never occurred to me, uh, but yeah, like a trombone or a sousaphone. Um, so the, the, the meanwhile, the, the, the chambers of commerce and, you know, business advocates and small business owners are all chomping at the bit. Uh, you know, I work at, at a business publication, so I get the press releases and, you know, uh, everybody from, you know, the New Orleans Chamber to Greater New Orleans Inc. to Jedco. And they're all, you know, they're saying, you know, Mayor Cantrell, let us open up, let us get back to business. We'll be responsible you know, how do we, from from a medical perspective, how do we balance the, the need for these businesses to survive with just the common sense of not creating a, a, another disaster? Yeah, no, that obviously is the $64,000 question, right? I mean, that is, that's a great question. <clears throat> and it's hard, again, for me to to answer that, um, it's hard for me to answer that in a, in a real meaningful way um, because from my perspective, I look at things from a strong public health perspective, right? And so, again, I, I, I know that we're moving into phase two, and I, and I think that's a good thing, right? And uh, there's no question about it. Um, and then we're going to start to see what happens as we move into phase two. But I was just on the phone with a colleague in Arizona, and right now, Arizona, it, they went from being closed to open overnight. They never went through any phases. And right now, um, they, they have no ICU beds in the entire state of Arizona. The, the, the largest healthcare system there is called Banner Health is like there, you know, and, and the same thing happened in Alabama. I mean, you know, they, they were out of ICU beds like two weeks ago uh, as well. So a colleague was telling me, you know, she was like, listen, I'll send you pictures. You'll see bars that are just like like nothing ever happened uh, at all. And what happens when you get into a situation like that is that you're gonna start seeing more and more cases and you're gonna start to see the healthcare system potentially collapse due to the the number of cases. So there does need to be that kind of fine line and that and, and walking that fine line. Uh, and so, you know, as I often say, there can be no economy without people. So making sure that people are safe and healthy is super important. So I think that what the mayor has been doing has been she's been very, very smart in her very practical approaches that she's been she's been very tactical. She's been very strategic and she's been looking at data. And she'll often say it's the data that drives the decision, not the date. And I think that's important. And, and she has been moving very slowly but intentionally very slowly so that um, she's making sure that the public safety 
is front uh, and and is 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 the most important thing. The other thing too, Rich, that you need to recognize too is that the folks that are being um, uh, affected with COVID nineteen are our communities most vulnerable people, right? So we're starting to see more and more data to suggest that it, it's, it's, it's poverty that's very likely driving or, or folks that are at the lower levels of the socioeconomic ladder. And that, and so it's, it's low income individuals that already have a difficult time to have access to quality health care or may not have sick days or may not have uh, the opportunity, you know, for paid leave or what have you. Uh, and so these are individuals that are potentially getting sick. Uh, and and, and, it, and to me, that's just, that's not fair, right? Again, you're seeing a disproportionate number of folks who are being uh, burdened by this illness are those that are, you know, the most vulnerable. So I think that it would be, you know, if businesses could rejigger, um, uh, you know, operations to to make sure that, that their employees are as safe as possible, to offer uh, uh, health insurance if possible, to offer paid sick leave. You know, we are this culture of, you know, if you have the sniffles or if you don't feel well, we're, we, we power through it, right? And we pride ourselves on being able to do something like that. But uh, I think that in this case that we really should be promoting people taking time off of work if they feel sick. Understood. Um, what's the significance of the data that, that shows the virus spreading more through air versus surface? Oh, it's huge. Like, the contact is very, very little. Uh, this is, I mean, it's still important to wash hands. It's still important to, you know, sanitize and all that stuff. But, but it, it, transmission through, um, through droplets or through aerosolized droplets are, without question, single-handedly, the respiratory route or inhalation of the virus is, without question, the number one route of transmission. So there are lots of data to show that, um, that indoors transmission of virus happens a lot more than outdoors. So again, so again, if you do have a business and it's an indoor business, a hardware shop, that's why it's so important that everybody should be wearing masks so that you are limiting that transmission of virus to other people. Because while contact and surface is a thing, it's more overwhelmingly the likelihood is through the respiratory route. Um, one practical question, then one final big picture question. Uh, do you have a recommendation for a specific mask? Ho- homemade masks are perfectly well. Uh, you know, my wife is, you know, she's just like anybody else in New Orleans who's a crafter. She's been making, you know, she's been making a ton of these masks. Um, and basically we have them at the door. We have a his and hers bag. Uh, when we walk out, we grab a mask, wear it for the day, and then at home when we come in at night, there's one big bag where we just plop them and they get washed at the end of the week. Um, so there's really no, you know, any mask, any any face covering really um, would would is ideal at this point. Uh, so, but just it's the idea of just wearing them. That's the most important thing. I had a bandana on yesterday when I went to Rouse's because I forgot the uh, the proper mask. You know, and I have to say, when I, you know, in Rouse's yesterday, and then just in general, when I'm going about my business, I had to go to the mall one time last week. People have masks on now. I mean, you, you see some without, but 
you definitely you feel, or at least I do, you feel stupid if you walk if you walk in someplace without a mask on. I mean, it's oh yeah, and I have I have masks everywhere like around me because sometimes I just walk out of the house and I don't have it, but I've got them stashed in my bag. You know, my office is right behind where I live, so it's easy for me. But if I all of a sudden I walk out, I'm like something's missing, and I almost feel naked without one because that you know my brain has been wired, and I've already left the house. It's you know too late for me to turn back. I've got masks that are stashed in my bag, and I'll pu- I'll pull those out. And then I wear that to the office. And then I, when I get to my office, I'll just put out another kind of, you know, another mask. But any face covering, that's the most important thing. Thanks. And then for the just big picture, looking at, um, you know, what's your thoughts on New Orleans resiliency as we try and get through this stage into the fall, facing challenges such as what are the states going to do? I know there's a lot of pressure for them to fill up the Superdome. What's your thought on New Orleans getting through this time as we balance all the different needs. Yeah, I mean, so it's, uh, you know, obviously that is another $64,000 question. That one's the $128,000 question. Um, So, you know, it's hard. I, I, you know, I am, you know, as a musician, as somebody who plays music, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a musician, not in this town at least, that have like, you know, PhDs, you know, whereas I'm like a first grader. But as as somebody who has a lot of friends who um, are uh, musicians, uh, I, I see the pain, I see the difficulty because musicians are uniquely, their whole business model is to play in front of people and make money doing that uh, and so I don't I don't know how that changes uh, moving forward uh, again singing is a particular issue as well as as we talked about the brass bands are a particular issue as well and so I don't know how that that is going to play out maybe as we move into phase two we see maybe things you know aren't as bad as we thought I definitely could tell you just looking at like Arizona like we were talking about that is just kind of back to quote unquote normal and we're seeing cases go up I, 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 that to me is not acceptable because that is going to burden the, uh, the healthcare system puts uh, me at risk it puts my colleagues at risk uh, it just puts the whole system at risk uh, as well uh, so uh, it, it's hard to say uh, the restaurants and again the bars those are, these are difficult questions the hotels uh, that require a steady stream of tourism of conventions of, of of, of these things, I, I don't know how how that would I don't know how that would work. Again, I'm particularly concerned about it, um, and uh, and and again, it's going to require some really innovative thinking from our health, our uh, business community to determine how we can do this. You know, moving forward. I mean, of course, the convention center was just getting ready set to start a huge project, right? Um, and start building a whole you know d- d- you know the hotel and the they had a whole project that they were getting ready to to start doing. I don't know how that moves forward in this time right now as we speak. But again, it's going to require a lot of innovative thinking. In terms of sports, to be honest with you, I think it's too early. I am particularly concerned about what happens when we pull, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, especially a sport like a contact sport, like if we're talking about swimming, eh, swimming's probably fine. You know, people can stay kind of socially distant from one another uh, to a large degree. But something like football, I, that to me would be a particular concern uh, just because I think that there's just, there's too much contact. The same thing with basketball. They're talking about basketball. Baseball, I mean, again, you can social distance for the most part with baseball, uh, you know, minus running around the bases and this sort of stuff but for the most part people are still pretty much social distance and and keeping people inside a a a stadium 
I'm particularly concerned about that as well. We know that the virus is transmitted far uh, uh, easier indoors, especially when people are yelling and screaming and, and again, projecting. And so that is of particular concern. Even if you fill up every fourth seat, let's say, if you if somebody kicks, you know, passes a, a beautiful, you know, a beautiful play that leads to a touchdown, people are going to jump up and, and, and scream, and, and that could be a potential uh, Effect. Now, if people wore masks, okay, that would that would certainly help. And then they didn't, you know, take down their masks to yell. But these are all, you know, as we move forward, we're going to be talking a lot more about risk mitigation. And you're going to hear words like risk mitigation moving forward a lot more. And that's essentially kind of weighing out the risks of one behavior versus versus the other. Uh, and so for the example of, you know, like you said, you know, if you were to have like a backyard party with 10 people or so with everybody wearing masks and, you know, and take down the masks to eat, but then we're more or less socially distant, that's probably going to be fine. Uh, but, you know, it's starting to get summer and sometimes it gets brutally, not so, <laughs> it's brutally hot in New Orleans. And so, you know, that will be difficult uh, by itself. So, I mean, these are tough questions that, that we have. And I think that there's no definitive answer now, but as we move forward, I think that these are things that are going to probably change over time. And our understanding of how this works is going to change over time and hopefully we'll get better the more experience that we have what's your advice for the safest way for people to go out and be a part of the protests that may be coming up after the rains clear out of the area right so um i think that for uh, protesters uh that i um i think are doing this amazing job that are really protesting uh um of centuries of 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 discrimination um that uh that wearing masks is without question the most important thing that you can do uh for people who are at protests i would try to stay away from people who aren't wearing masks so i attended the protest on friday night and uh, i would say about 90 percent of people were wearing masks and i kind of positioned myself uh in a situation where um where everyone around me was wearing masks um I'm encouraging people not to pull down their mask to, to yell as they chant in support or what have you. Um, it's socially distancing is just in, it's almost impossible to do, um, uh, especially here in New Orleans because we're you know they're protesting on. Um, uh, right in front of Jackson Square, uh, right in front of the big 300 uh, that's there. And so it's just it, more and more people are coming in. I was there for a couple hours. I was, I was fairly uncomfortable. That was kind of the first time this whole time that I've really kind of have gone out, uh, minus you know, a few trips here and there to the, to the supermarket um, uh, to make groceries. But you know, I've been working, obviously I'm an infectious diseases doctor, so a global pandemic is gonna keep me pretty busy, pretty busy as you'd imagine. But my team kind of said, hey, let's, let's go and let's see what's happening. So we did. And um, uh, masking uh, and also uh, making sure that people stay uh, uh, socially distant. I was part of a, um, of, a, of a letter writing campaign this weekend that got submitted to Mayor Cantrell as well as to uh, Chief Police Chief Ferguson uh, uh, with 800 
healthcare professionals who signed this letter uh, asking that uh, that tear gas or any sort of um, uh, a pepper spray not be used, uh, uh, given that people are going to rub their eyes. We recognize that that there are the receptors in the eyes that, that the virus, it's, a, it's not a very common way for the virus to get into the eyes, uh, but people are going to be rubbing their eyes or they're going to be coughing. And these are just super spreading events. So really making sure that pepper spray uh, is not used. Um, I would recommend to, to protesters that if things start getting a little like, you know, you know. Fortunately, in New Orleans, we've been amazingly well. Um, the protesters and the police have been interacting with each other very well. We've seen examples around the country where that hasn't been the case. And so, if things start getting to a point where it's getting very uh, hectic like that to leave, um, there was one moment on Friday where things were starting to get a little heated, and I saw families around me start to leave. Um, and I actually left soon after uh, as well. Of course, it it. it, it Everything ended up working out fine. There was just an agitator, and they were calling out the agitator. Uh, but you know, it was moments like that when people need to recognize that's when things could really be potentially un- unsafe uh, as well. But those the three things I call for are universal masking, making sure that people are socially distant, and really for the NOPD or any of the police departments across the country to not use pepper spray or to not use any of the noxious stimuli that could potentially make the um, the coughing. Or, uh, uh, or that could potentially transmit the virus even more. Understood. Thank you so much. Mark Allen, thanks for all the expertise and all your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.